Heavenly Father, we're grateful for once again we're able to come into your presence and sit at your feet and hear from your word, which for some of us is a very familiar story and for others not so much. But Lord, we just pray no matter where we are in our journey with you, you would speak new truths into our lives and that we would see you for who you are, the God of grace and truth. And Lord, think our thoughts now that my words would be your words among this, your people. And Lord, that you would bend our wills to your will and set each and every one of our hearts on fire with a love for you that surpasses our understanding. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it was Benjamin Franklin who said there are two things in life that you can count on, right? You know they're certain. Death and taxes. And so around April 15th every year, we, we, we talk about our taxes, right? We talk about our refund, or unfortunately we got to pay, whatever situation we find ourselves in, uh, we, we talk about that. But death, we don't talk about our death, do we? That's one subject where it's uncomfortable, it's awkward, and we avoid it. But today, Jesus is going to talk about it. And he's going to deal with it in a way that warms our hearts. And so I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 11. As we're in this series entitled Discovering the Real Jesus, we come upon his greatest of seven miracles in John. There's, we've only dealt with a few of them. We dealt with a couple weeks ago the, the miracle of feeding the 5,000. Last week it was the man who'd been born blind, was granted his sight. And today, his buddy Lazarus, after four days being buried, rises from the dead. And we learn two great truths in this passage. We learn about the identity of God in Jesus Christ and the work of God in Jesus Christ. Those two great truths, the identity of God in Jesus Christ and the work of God in Jesus Christ. Setting the stage in verses 1 through 16... We know the story. Jesus has these really good friends. We've seen this throughout John, if you keep reading the passages we didn't read. You know, Bethany's only a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem, so if Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, he's going to stop off in Bethany to his friends, Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. And they're just wonderful gospel partners. They host him. He gets to teach there. Mary sits at his feet. Martha is type A personality, always getting things done. You know, Mary is that more contemplative and loves to sit at the master's feet. And Lazarus, we, all we know about Lazarus is he's the brother of these two sisters. And he loves his family. If, if any of you have ever done Christian ministry and you keep going back to the same home, you know of the type of love he has for these people. I got to spend two weeks last year at this time with the Moppet family in Bristol, England. They opened up their home to me and Brian Woltice from All Saints Holland for two weeks. Just imagine opening up your home for two weeks. To strangers. You never met them before, but they did. And Dr. John Moppet is the leading pediatric cancer physician in the whole nation of Great Britain. He says, I'm the doctor you never want to see. You know, because he deals with kids who have cancer. And, and he just, it's his passion to save 
kids' lives from this dreaded disease. And he married Ruth late in their lives. They're, they're, they're a little younger than me. And they were told, you, you never have kids. Well, their little church gathered around them and prayed for them. And guess what? Nine months later, baby Grace came along. And she's just this delightful little eight-year-old girl. And, and she just loved having these Americans with her. And we played Legos with her. We you know, read her stories. And it was just a wonderful time getting to know this family and getting to know their culture. And we talked about British culture and American culture and the similarities and the differences and, and everything about it. And it was just wonderful. And as we left, we cried. We're not going to see him for a while. I hope to see him again someday. But uh, I hope it's, I said to Grace, I hope the next time I see you, you're not 16. You know? I want to capture these years with you and your mom and dad, you know? And she's just, you ever had an eight-year-old cry over your departure? It just melted my heart. You know, so we're in contact with them a little bit, but COVID kind of shut it down for a little bit. So me and Brian were talking this past week. We need to reignite that relationship. That's just a hint, I think, of what Jesus felt about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so that whole verse 1 through 16, Lazarus has died suddenly. We don't know what he got, how he died, but he's dead, and he's been dead for four days. So Jesus delays because of what he's about to do. So he rides there, and the first thing we learn about this whole encounter is his identity as God incarnate. And I want you to notice, he reveals himself to Martha in one way and to Mary another. <laughs> they ask him the same question. Did you notice that? It's the exact same question that Carol read. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But to Mary, he responds one way, and to Martha, he responds another way. To Martha, he says in verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in, me, though he die, believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Oh, with Mary, look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Verse 35, Jesus wept. See, with, with Martha, he confronts her sorrow. He's meeting her sorrow and calls her to the hope that is found in him. Right? Because that's what she needs. With Mary, he doesn't say a thing. He just enters right into her sorrow. And all he does is sit with her and weep and grieve. And John is giving us some profound insight here. Because with Martha, he's claiming to be God. And with Mary, he's showing himself to be human. In other words, he's fully God, fully human, God in the flesh, God incarnate, the God-man. That's his identity. So, 
notice what he says to Martha. He doesn't say, I have access to divine power. I can raise this man from the dead. No. He says, I am the power that gives everything life. I am the life. I am life. I'm the source of all life. Only God is that. And Mary needs to to know that. She needs to understand that. And to have this defense about him. An apologetic, if you will. She needs to know that. And his claim to be God. But with Mary, he's just showing himself completely to be God in the flesh. What we have here, even though he's completely God, he enters into her suffering. His love for this family pulls him into their sorrow, their pain, their devastation. He feels the horror of this death. If he was only deity, he would not feel the horror of death. He would not grieve like this, but he's both. So what we have here is Jesus Christ, fully divine, fully human, and when you step back and you think about that for five seconds, it blows your mind. And this is exactly the type of thing our hearts need in this season of pandemic. With Martha, he's meeting her intellectual needs. She needs to understand that he is the Son of God. And with Martha, she just needs, with Mary, he needs the wonderful counselor. He needs a counselor. Because some people need intellectual challenging. And others need nothing but comfort and hope. Some people need what Jesus gives, the ministry of truth, which he gives to Martha. And others just need the ministry of grace, which he gives to Mary. And people need them sometimes in different, all of us need some of those in different times in all our lives, right? Sometimes we need the intellectual, and others we need the grace. Know he's with us. Because if you give someone confrontation and apologetic and defense to someone who just needs support and, and grace and you give someone who needs grace confrontation and intellectual and defense of the gospel type of information you can harm them and you see all human counselors are limited to a degree because we all have habitual tendencies we either tend to be more towards truth or towards grace. But Jesus, being God in the flesh, inhabits the entire spectrum of what people need. Full of grace and truth, and he is the only perfect counselor. He's the one who can give you exactly what you need, when you need it, as you look to him. That's the reason you have passages like Paul is trying to bring out to the Colossian church Colossians 1.15, the God of truth. Because he's answering for the Colossians, does God even exist? Here's how you know God's exist, Paul says. 
Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether rulers or authorities or dominions or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he holds all things together. And he's before all things. And he is the head of the body, the church, the firstborn of all creation. He's the beginning of Firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. <laughs> Wrap your mind around those three verses this afternoon. What Paul is saying He is God, He is Creator, He holds it all together, He's holy, and yet He's able to understand everything that we're going through. Hebrews 4 says it this way. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and grace to find help in our time of need. Did you hear that? Tempted In all things as we are, yet without sin, there's the balance. Fully God, fully human. He's not just a sinless God who doesn't know what it's like to go through the sufferings that we've gone through. And on the other hand, we don't have somebody who's just like us, who's no better than us. We have in Jesus, God. And when we come into a relationship with him, and he reorders our affections. He makes our affections his. Jonathan Edwards said it this way, despite his high claims, he's never pompous. And you never see him standing on his own dignity. He is tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, humility without the slightest lack of confidence unhesitating authority with a complete lack of self-absorption, unbending convictions without the slightest lack of approachability, power without insensitivity, enthusiasm without fanaticism, holiness without Phariseeism, passion without prejudice. Nothing he does falls short In fact, he's always surprising you and taking your breath away because he's incomparably better than you could have imagined for yourself. Why, Edwards asks, these are the surprises of perfection. (laughs) See, when you bring Jesus together, the height and the depth and the power and the humility, the greatness with no pomposity, That's attractive. Don't you feel that? Don't you? That's what we have in Jesus. In verse 40, Jesus says to Martha, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? He's been dead for four days. Didn't I tell you? You'd see my glory, my awe, my power, my majesty my holiness, my grace. That's just the beginning of the word glory. 
when we see the glory of God and only when we see the absolute beauty of who Jesus is will draw your heart out and reorder your loves. Only Jesus does that. But you've got to look at him for who he is. He's the image of the invisible God who's able to sympathize with everything you're going through. Fully God, fully human. That's his identity. Secondly, we see his purpose in raising Lazarus. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Those, the Greek words for deeply moved and greatly troubled are words that generally mean angry, a settled anger. In other words, literally means to roar like an animal. It's, it's, he's coming to the tomb with an attitude, no, 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 not today, not today. There's an anger. But what's he angry at? He, he, B.B. Warfield uh, was that great Reformed theologian at Princeton in the late 1800s. Phenomenal scholar and pastor. He says, Jesus advances to the tomb, not weak and sniveling, but as a champion preparing for a conflict. And John is uncovering the heart here of Jesus for us here. But what's he angry at? He's not saying, like last week, who sinned that Lazarus died? Boy, Lazarus really must have messed up, must have listened to too much Eddie Van Halen. You know? I love Eddie Van Halen. I'm kind of sorry this week, those of us who are children of the 70s and 80s. But, you know, come on. Who sinned? He's not asking that. And he's not shaking his fist at his father. Because he knows the reality of Genesis 3. He understands that this world is broken and it's suffering and evil and death are not part of God's original design. But here we are. So he's not mad at Lazarus or Mary or Martha. You know, he's not acting as, you know, if this world is a surprise to him. And he's also not mad at God the Father. What he's angry at is death itself. And I like that. I like that a lot. You see, God is not stoic. We Westerners and, you know, my friends, the Britons, you know, keep calm and carry on. The bombs are falling down. Keep calm, carry on. Right? <laughs> you know, uh, Monty Python made a living off that, right? You know, it's just a flesh wound. Right? That's stoicism. Okay? Uh, you hear people do this all the time. Well, death is inevitable. We can't let it get to us, but praise the Lord, I'll get through it. No, that's stoicism. That, that, isn't, that isn't God in Jesus. He's angry at this. And he knew the only way he could get Lazarus out of the grave was to put himself into the grave. 
Why do I say it that way? Because if you turn in your Bibles to verse 53, you'll see at the end of this passage, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Oh my goodness. This is chapter 11. We got 10 chapters to go. And from chapter 12 to 21 is all Holy Week. That's what's so unique about John. John devotes 10 chapters to Palm Sunday to the Ascension, <laughs> ultimately. Amazing. He just, first 11 chapters, three years. The last 10, one week. Because to get Lazarus out, he knew he was going to have to do something about it. Because as soon as he did this, he knew he was going to the cross. He had to go to the cross to pay what we couldn't pay for ourselves. And he knew the only way he was going to save us was if he took on all the wrath and divine justice of sin that we deserved. And so he knew as soon as he brought his friend out of this, he was going to the cross. So this is Saturday or Friday before Palm Sunday. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped. So when he said, Lazarus, come out, Jesus was signing, signing his own death warrant. You know, the crowd spoke out more than they knew when they said, see how he loved him. You and I can look at Jesus and say, Lazarus, come out and say, behold how he loves us. He would do this for Lazarus. He wasn't doing this just for Lazarus, brothers and sisters. He's doing this for us. So let's apply this, all right? Three very practical applications, no matter how old or how young you are this morning. Number one. First, don't shake your hand at God when you're going through suffering. A lot of us are in pain right now, and it's very easy for us to say, Lord, why are you letting this happen to me? No, Jesus isn't mad at the circumstance. He's mad at the source of the circumstance, which leads to death. And Jesus has come to do something about that for you and me. You know, in this pandemic, in this time, so many people are absolutely gripped with fear. And it's a good time for us to ask, not only as a leadership with our vestry and, and little church teams and deacon ministry teams, to ask ourselves, Lord, what are you doing around us? What are you doing among us? It's also good for us as individuals to ask ourselves what Jesus, much, much of Jesus' message was, where your heart is, there your treasure will be. And maybe the huge question mark over our lives is, where is our treasure during this time? And it's a huge question mark whether you really can handle your own mortality. Maybe that's what God is teaching us, to put confidence totally in what we say we believe. And if Jesus is your greatest treasure, 
That's a game changer. And what he's angry at most is the source of our suffering, which will cause our death. And he's come to do something about it. Let's rest in his plan, his sovereign plan. It's not easy, but we can do that. Two, if he really is this powerful and great, and he really has done this for you, brothers and sisters, you need to take the limits off of your allegiance on him that you have on him. Let's be honest. All of us say, well, I'm living for Jesus as Christians. But we all have limits to how far we'll let ourselves go in him or what we're willing to let him do in our lives or that we're willing to do for him in our lives. You know, when I look at the things that I read as a young Christian, J.I. Packer's Lord, I Want to Be a Christian or John Stott's Basic Christianity, or the great teachers that God blessed me with. Kimmy and I, as I've, I, I still brag on the guy. John Howe, my rector. He, the guy's a phenomenal preacher. He, I encourage you, go Church of, the, Church of the Woods? Church in the Woods, Fredericksburg, Virginia. He's the interim pastor there in his 70s. And he's preaching there on Sundays. Just go there. Lake of the Woods Church, I think. Lake of the Woods Church. Yeah. It's an interdenominational church. Very interesting place. where It started off with a bunch of retirees from Washington going living outside of Fredericksburg. Now it's suburbs of Washington. Um, guy can preach. I mean, he'd just grab you and draw you in like nobody else. Amazing. Chuck Swindoll, R.C. Sproul, Adrian Rogers. Everybody I read and heard said the same thing. You know, Basically saying, if you have a prophet or a wise man that gives you wisdom on what you should do, that's one thing. But if someone comes along and says, I'm God and I've come to die for you, you don't respond to him in a mild way. You either run away as fast as you can, or you give your life entirely to him as your Lord. Absolutely everything. For two great reasons. Number one is your creator. He made you. He created you. He loves you. He preserves you. And secondly, he deserves it because he died for you. He redeemed you. He gave up everything for you. And if he's that great, that person, you don't just dial up when you want him. Right? You got a problem, then I'll call. I'll call you if I need you, Lord. Right? No, think of it this way. Rod Whitaker, I, I, I uncovered my notes from a New Testament class on this Colossians that I took with Rod Whitaker from Trinity. He was my New one of my New Testament professors. And Rod used this example because he was making this point. He said, if the distance between the earth to the sun, which is 92 million miles, was just the thickness of one sheet of paper, then the distance from the earth to the nearest star would be a stack of papers 71 feet high. Just the diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And our galaxy is just a little speck of dust virtually in this enormous place called the universe. And according to Colossians 1 that I read to you earlier, Jesus 
holds all of that together by the word of his power in his pinky. And that Jesus came and died for you and me. Is that the kind of person you invite into your life to be your personal assistant? Or your life coach? Or your consultant? And you'll call him when you need him. Otherwise, you're very happy just to go along life your own merry way. Is that what you do? No. You take all the limits off your allegiance and you give your life over to him completely. That's second. Third and last application. Especially in this time of coronavirus. Don't let your fear of death totally overtake you and grip you completely. You are in the palm of his hands. Oh, be wise. Yes. Wear your masks. Yes. Don't be stupid. But don't let death either covertly or overtly overtake you. If you go into my home office, I have a Norton anthology of English literature. It's, it's, Becca told me to throw it away. I go, I can't. She goes, Dad, you get a hardcover of it. They're easy to get. Like, no, 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 no. I, I, I labored in this used copy. It's all frayed and falling apart. But in that Norton anthology is a poem by George Herbert, 1600s Anglican minister who wrote this incredible dialogue anthem. It's a dialogue between Christian and death. And they dialogue throughout the poem to one another. Basically, it's 1600s talking smack. (laughs) It's phenomenal. And at the very end, death says to Christians, These arms shall crush thee. And Christian, the very last thing he says, Spare not. Do thy worst. I shall be one day better than before. Thou so much worse that thou shalt be no more. On one level, that's Jesus talking. Jesus says to death, bring it. Destroy me and I will destroy death for my children. And I will destroy death forever. When death killed Jesus Christ, it basically signed its own death warrant for those who place their trust in this Jesus. So let's be about it. Because that's you in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have revealed yourself and we know you for who you are. As Martha confessed, the one true living God the Christ who has come into the world. And you weep as we weep and come into our lives as that non-anxious present holding us in the palm of your hands. And so, O Lord, we come to you this day recognizing that you came to conquer 
death itself. And you were angry at it, because this is not as this world will be, and will, will not always be this way. And so, Lord, number one, we give you our lives. We give it all, Lord. And we recognize that when we're going through suffering, we won't shake our hands at you and, and ask, what did we do, Lord, to deserve this? Or, or why did you let? We just turn to you and recognize that on the cross you dealt with it. And one day you will deal with any suffering we're going through. And Lord, we give you our lives completely. Every aspect of our lives. That no matter where this word has challenged us, Lord, we would give that to you. And as we approach the table today, we, we would recognize that that's one thing we need to lay at the cross. And we would do that. And Lord, we, we get out of our chairs and come to you. And, and come to you with nothing in our hands, nothing in our lives, but just because clinging on to your grace, which you freely give to us and delight in doing so. We thank you for that. Lord, we give to you our lives. And Lord, in doing so, we can look death in the eyes and say, bring it, do your worst. Because even as we leave this planet, we have a better place because we're in your presence. And one day, when you return, because you are preeminent, you'll make all things new. And we look forward to that, Lord. And so we pray this truth would be so firm in each and every one of our lives so that you, O oh Lord, would receive the glory and honor as you show us your glory. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.